And uh, one reason why we're looking at Luke 11, we've been here for a little while now, but one reason we're looking at Luke 11 is because we want to be followers of Jesus. If we had a uh, motto as a church, we might say we want to be followers of Jesus who help others follow Jesus. Uh, Disciples who make disciples. That's CBC. We're here to make disciples. We're here to help others follow Jesus. And of course, if we're going to help others follow Jesus, we need to follow Jesus. And so we're going back to Jesus and looking at the instructions that he gives regarding what it means to follow him. Because we've got all kinds of ideas. But following Jesus means following Jesus. And so we need Jesus to lead. What are his priorities for us? We've got priorities, but what are Jesus's priorities for us? And we see in Luke chapter 11 that one of his first priorities is prayer. Jesus prays. Jesus' disciples are to pray. That's Luke. The church prays. That's Acts. We meet a praying Jesus in Luke. We meet a praying church in Acts. We are designed to be a praying community. Are we a praying community? This is like a sign. People who understand the gospel, who understand what God is doing through Jesus, who understand God's great salvation plan, are a people who prioritize prayer. Do we prioritize prayer? Churches that don't pray are dead churches. Instead of putting united prayer last, we want to put it first. This is one of my main goals, really, this year at CBC, that we would take a step forward towards prioritizing prayer. Because, you know, we can do a lot of things as a church. There's a lot of things for us to do, and we can even perhaps make a name for ourselves as a church, and we can be really active as a church, and we can maybe even impress people as a church, but what we are on our knees before God in prayer reveals who we are as a church. And where we are as a church. Prayer reveals what we really believe. Which is a little scary, honestly. When you think about the American church, just in general. I don't think that you normally think of a church that's devoted to prayer. We maybe say a lot of things about prayer. Though I'm not sure we even say as many things about prayer as we used to. But how, how we act often reveals a completely different attitude towards prayer. The way we act reveals what we really believe. And what we really believe is sometimes not that different than unbelievers. So, like, what's the American dream, you know? What's the American way, the American gospel? You can do this. You're great. You're a, you're a superstar. You have to make something happen. And our faith in that gospel often shows up in our lack of prayer individually and corporately as a community. Because if we talk about praying, 
Maybe we talk about praying individually, and that's important, of course, but the New Testament also talks about praying corporately as a community. Even the Lord's Prayer that we're going to be looking at here in Luke 11, we're so familiar with this prayer, but I think sometimes we miss all the plurals. Give us, Jesus says. Forgive us, for we lead us. This is not Jesus just teaching us here how to pray individually, but teaching us how to have a good prayer meeting, basically, to pray as a community. You read through the Gospel of Luke, one of the things you find Jesus pleading with the disciples to do is pray. Luke 18, 1, Luke 20, 36, Luke 22, 40. And they're struggling throughout the Gospel of Luke. But then Jesus rises from the dead. The book of Acts, the Spirit of God descends, and boom, they're praying. We need to pray individually, corporately. It reveals what we believe. It's a means God uses. It works, and it's a privilege prayer. We should be the ones chasing God to pray. But he's the one who has to come to us. People don't start praying in the Bible until Genesis 4. And the reason they start praying in Genesis 4 is because after man sinned, God came and made a promise in Genesis 3. Prayer is a demonstration of God's grace to us. And so we want to be a church that prioritizes prayer, that doesn't just talk about the importance of prayer, but that prays. And so we're looking at Luke specifically. That's why we're here, Luke 11, to learn how to pray. We need to pray. How do we pray? Which is a question, I guess, that could sound a little strange, like, you're going to teach me how to pray. I, I, I just pray. I don't need a class on praying. I don't need to be taught how to pray. That's like a class on talking. And you can understand that, right? Because we don't want to make prayer more complicated than it is. We all know people who are kind of scared to pray because they think, I don't know how to pray well. And so, especially when we have times to pray as a church, they never pray because they don't think they're good at prayer. And that's always sad to me because praying is talking to God from the heart. It's pretty basic. We, we should all be able to do that. It's not like a performance or anything. Prayer meeting is not a piano recital. Praying is not trying to impress God by your eloquence. Praying is really bringing your helplessness to God. And so I don't want to make prayer more difficult than it is. And yet we do need to learn how to pray, for one thing, because you can do it wrong. There are prayers that the Bible says God hates. There are prayers that he doesn't listen to. There are prayers that don't line up with what the Bible teaches. And so there definitely needs to be instruction. And we know that for sure, because when the disciples say to Jesus, please teach us to pray, in Luke 11, Jesus says to them, verse 2, this is how you pray. He teaches them. Which means this is something Jesus thought mattered, instruction on prayer. And so over the past couple weeks, we've begun looking at the way Jesus teaches the disciples to come to God, and we've begun laying down some basic principles we learned from Jesus' prayer. And the first was kind of simple. We said rule number one, if you want to call them rules, 
believe. You need to begin prayer by making sure you're believing the gospel. Because that's the only way you can call God Father. Jesus says, Luke 11, when you pray, say Father. And Matthew says, say Our Father. Where you start, if you're going to get prayer right, is what with what's going on in the heart. And the first thing in Luke 11 that needs to be going on in your heart is faith. And not just generic faith, faith in the gospel. Faith that God is for you because of Jesus Christ. There's no real praying without faith in Jesus and the promises God's made. I'm just standing there talking, praying to myself if I'm not believing the gospel. First, believe. That's first. Second, a second rule for prayer today, remember. First, believe. Second, remember. Specifically, remember you are speaking to God, which I know, again, sounds kind of simple. But obviously, one essential requirement of prayer is to know who you're talking to when you pray. And it's kind of crazy, really, how easy it is to forget when you're praying who you're speaking to. That you are speaking to God. And I mean in capital letters, God. We want gospel-driven prayers. We want God-centered prayers. And I'm drawing this principle from Jesus' words here in Luke 11, 2, where he says, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. And another way to say that would be, Father, let your name be hallowed. Which may not mean that much to us at first because no one really uses the word hallow or hallowed anymore except maybe for Halloween. So we have to get this right first. What does it mean? Even though we don't use the word hallow very much, the idea is not that complicated really because hallow essentially means honor. In the Old Testament, you can think of how God hallowed the Sabbath day. He set one day apart from the rest that was supposed to be treated as something special. And so to hallow is to set apart or to reverence. Or you could even say to put on display as holy. And it's like a request here, obviously. It's not praising God. Hallow your name like God, I glorify your name. It's a petition. When you pray, say, Father, would you hallow your name? But it also reflects an attitude. And that's what I want us to think about, really. It's an, an attitude. What is behind this request? It means, God, glorify yourself. Make it clear to this world that you are God. Why would you pray that? Where is this request coming from? It needs to come from a certain attitude towards God. The request itself doesn't mean much, really, if you just say it. If it doesn't reflect what's going on in, in your heart. If it's just some formality you say because you think you're supposed to. Like, oh God, hallowed be your name. Now can we talk about myself? You're missing Jesus' point, which is that what is supposed to be driving you as you pray is God himself. I mean, an awe of God. 
where you come to prayer because you know God and you love God. And so when you say, hallowed be your name, you're really saying, God, the reason I'm here on my knees is because I want your name to be honored and reverenced and set apart from everything else. In other words, I want your name to be hallowed because I know you and because I know you're special, you're unique, you're first, and you're more important than anything else. And so as I come to you in prayer, the thing that matters most to me is that you would be glorified. When you say you want God's name to be hallowed, you're saying, God, you are at the center of the universe. I know that. And I actually want that. I like you there. I, I, I love you being there. And I don't just want that for myself. I want everyone else to know you're at the center of the universe as well. It's a request, hallowed be your name, but it's also a response. It's like you're considering the character of God, the promises of God, the, the greatness of God, and you're saying, wow. You're beautiful, and you're awesome, and you're majestic, and you're seeing this, and it's like you're looking around you, and you're saying, I want everyone else to see this as well. I want everyone else to see you, God, the way that I'm seeing you, and that comes first for you, really. This comes first in prayer. And I guess I'm, I'm saying that because I just love that Jesus puts this at the beginning of his teaching on prayer. You address God, Father. And then first you pray, hallowed be your name. First, because, you know, Jesus doesn't start where a lot of people start, does he? At least in terms of their attitude in their relationship with God. He doesn't start with us. And that's important. He doesn't start with you at the center. Instead, he starts with God. And so it's like he's saying, listen, as you pray, you've got all these things going on in your life and things you want and things you're concerned about. And God wants you to talk to him about all that kind of stuff. But even with all those problems and pressures that you feel are so important, never forget that your basic, most fundamental longing in prayer, what you want God to do, the thing that should be driving you first and foremost, most is God being glorified. God glorifying himself. And you know, I'm kind of going on about this because this is not just a prayer statement, actually. This is a life statement. In fact, this is one of the things that sets true Christian Christianity apart from fake Christianity at the end of the day. There's a, a lot of fake Christianity out there, but one of the things that sets real Christianity apart is that real Christianity has God at the center. And fake Christianity has man at the center. And so they both talk about God, but one has God at the center, real Christianity, and the other has man in God's place. I heard a long time ago, and I, I'm going to say it all the time in the years ahead because I think it's so good, but in this world, everything is an instrument or an end. So an instrument is something you use to accomplish a certain purpose, and an end is the purpose. So a pen 
is an instrument. And you use that instrument for a purpose, writing a letter. And if you take a step back, ultimately, there's actually only one great end. There is only one great purpose to everything in the universe. And absolutely everything else is an instrument to accomplishing that purpose. And that purpose is God. God's glory. God's reputation. God's being being put on display. That's what matters. And if we open up our Bibles, that's kind of the whole point, really. This is a book about God. And it's showing us how great God is. It's showing us God's glory. And helping us see that God's glory is the goal of all things. And actually, it's very hard to understand this book unless you understand that. And by hard, I mean impossible. <laughs> unless you understand that there's this God out there who created everything we see and who is in a class by himself and who deserves praise, honor, worship, because everything about him is absolutely perfect and is the way it should be. And every which way you look at God, he is beautiful and the whole universe was created to shout out his glory everywhere you look is shouting out God's wisdom, God's power, God's beauty. That's why he made the world and that's why things happen the way they did in this world. History is about his glory and, and he's even using the way we broke things to bring himself glory ultimately. You might say his glory is like the ocean and the things that happen are like rivers and all of those rivers are flowing one direction. They're all pouring into the ocean of the glory of God. I mean, the reason we're on the planet is the glory of God. That's why God saved us. That's why Jesus died. That's why he rose again. That's why he's coming back. That's why we're here in church. That's why, that's why, that's why the glory of God. And yet obviously we know the problem is while the Bible's so clear about all this, for a lot of people who say they're Christians, they're actually thinking and living as if it were ultimately all about them instead. As if God were the instrument and they were the end, where their purpose is their glory and God is the tool that they're using to accomplish that. And one place that shows up is in the way they pray. There's no passion in their prayers for the glory of God, though there is a lot of passion for the glory of self. It's like, Father, hallowed be my name. And it's almost really as if they're talking to God like they were God. If you're listening closely, maybe they give some lip service to God, but it's their interests that are most important. It's their honor that matters most, that comes first. And you know, there's not much reverence. There's not much awe. And if you're going to be straight up, in some of their prayers, there's not much God. 
And the sad thing is, while it's easy to be critical of other people's prayers, the reality is that can even sometimes be true for those of us who feel like we have our doctrines down and who say we're serious about what the Bible teaches. We know it's about God and we know what this phrase means, hallowed be your name, but too often that's only theory for us. We know it's about God theoretically, that's what we'd say, but practically a whole lot of times we're living as if it were really all about us, and we're praying like that as well. Paul Tripp writes, and you know Paul Tripp, he's an author. He says, I know for myself, and I'm not alone, that so much of my prayer has nothing to do with the glory of God. And that's a pretty strong statement if you replay it in your mind. Nothing. I know for myself that so much of my prayer, he says, has nothing to do with the glory of God. That's a very strong statement. But honestly, how much of your prayer life has to do with the glory of God? How often are you driven to pray because of this passion for God to be glorified? Praise God if that's what drives you. That's a demonstration of his grace and goodness to you. But unfortunately, Tripp goes on, in much of our prayers, we are actually asking God to endorse our pursuit of self-focused little glories. And I wonder if you're hearing what he's saying. He's saying, in a lot of our prayers, it's not hallowed be thy name, it's hallowed be my name, only we're smart, and so we phrase it in a way to make it not sound so selfish. It's actually what a lot of good doctrinal Christians, the way they live their life, right? It's really, they're driven by a passion for self, but they've come to church long enough to make that sound more religious and more spiritual. Again, Paul Tripp explains how that works out in prayer. We'll say, God give me wisdom at work, which is a fine prayer, if it's God give me wisdom so you'll be glorified, but too often it's give me wisdom so I can make more money, or acquire more power, or get a better reputation for myself. Or we'll say, God help me with my financial problems, which could be totally appropriate, except too often the reason we want our financial woes fixed is so that we don't have to trust God any longer. And so that we have more money to spend on the pleasure and possessions that we think will make us happy. Or we pray, God, help my child to be more respectful, not so much for my child's good or God's glory, but instead so that my evenings will be more peaceful so I can get the things done that I want to get done. And on and on we can go looking at ways we're actually driven mostly to pray by a passion for us. And Jesus is telling us that needs to change. We need to change the way we pray. The first thing we should want is not just that God would make our lives easier, but that God would glorify himself or even love himself more than anything else. Isn't that awesome? In other words, we're to say, hallowed be thy name. And one reason hallowed be your name is at the beginning of prayer. And one reason it's so important to remember this at the beginning of prayer is because it's like a big old stop sign for us, really. That's how I think of it. When I pray, it's like, wait. Before you go any further into the throne room to talk to the king, stop and make sure your attitude is straight by remembering exactly who you're talking to. You are talking to God. 
And of course, the reason we're having this whole long sermon on just this one phrase is because I know there are a lot of times when you're beginning to pray and you're just like blah towards God. Or you're just worked up about your, yourself. But you're not sitting down to pray in awe of God, longing for His glory the way I'm describing. In fact, Paul Tripp's got another book that sounds great. It's called Awe, Why It Matters for Everything We Say, Think, or Do. And I like that. Awe matters. And I think Jesus would say he's right. Awe matters because it's the attitude behind hallowed be your name. And it's what, what is missing a lot of times as we go to pray. There's just no awe. And awe is a, a great word because awe is, is what? It's seeing something and being blown away by its greatness. Awe is what happens when you're looking at something and your heart is captured and you think it's so beautiful and so valuable and so important and you're amazed by it and so you can't help but be passionate about it and jealous for it. And obviously that's not, a, a lot of times that's not the way we feel about God, unfortunately, when we go to God in prayer. Instead, initially, honestly, a lot of times we're cold and distracted. And I think if we're going to learn to pray the way Jesus wants us to, we need to make a priority in our lives of getting the awe back into our prayers. And that's the point, I think, behind how would be your name. And maybe you're asking how. What's it mean, hallowed be your name? It means you want God to show the world he's God. Why would you pray this? Because you're in awe of God. You've seen the glory of God. But how do you pursue that kind of attitude in prayer? Let me give you four places to start real quickly. First, look up. You need to look up when you pray. And obviously I don't mean physically, I mean spiritually. You need to look up and think about the character of God. The people most sincerely passionate about God are the people thinking the most true thoughts about God. And the reason a lot of us are lacking a passion for the glory of God is because we're not really thinking about God. We're thinking about us. And unfortunately, for some of us, that's because we don't really know him that well in the first place. If you're going to pray, hallowed be your name, you need to know God. And so if I ask you, what is it that you love about God? Is there anything that comes to mind? I love when we're in small groups. This is a good small group question. Just to start out. How you doing? Do you have a good week? What do you love about God? What's exciting you this week about God? And really, that should not be a hard question for us as Christians to answer. There should be a lot that comes into our mind because there's a whole world out there revealing his beauty. Just on the drive to church, there were like a thousand things shouting out to you how great God is. And there's a whole book that he wrote to tell us what he's like. And yet sometimes, even though people are Christians, they only know God superficially. And so there's not much that comes to mind when they think about God. And so obviously there's not much of a passion for him to be glorified. If you're going to pray, hallowed be thy name, and you look at your life and you honestly don't know that much about God, start there. 
with getting to know God. And, and maybe you do. Others of us, we kind of do know God. That's a big thing to say, really. <laughs> we know God. But we do know something about God and we've learned great truths about God. But it's, and you know this, it's like we're great at forgetting, actually. You know how with little children, sometimes when you call them to come to you, when they're little, they're easily distracted and they start by coming across the room, so they listen at first, but then they see something else and off they wander and so you have to constantly be like, hey, look, look at me, look at me, come, come, come. And with God, we're like that all the time. Even if we've seen his beauty in the past, like little children, we get distracted and forgetful. And that's, again, why we need to work as we pray. We need to look up. We need to come back to what the scripture teaches us about God and think about that and pray about that until we're enjoying him and fired up about him, being set apart, being hallowed. Maybe you take a list of God's attributes, that means God's character qualities as revealed in scripture, and you start praying through them. I used to do this a lot when I was younger, just go A to Z, or A to Z, excuse me, A to Z, and try to think of an attribute for each letter of the alphabet, and then pray about that. God is awesome, God is beautiful. God is good. God is holy. God sees everything. God knows everything. God's all powerful. And on, on we could go. But you take a list like that, and maybe you start by defining each word. God, you're good. What does it mean that you're good? It, it means this. And what difference does it make that you're good? It matters because. And where in, in the Bible do we see your goodness? Oh, we see how good you are there. And how have you been good to me? God, you have been so good. Hallowed be your name. Or another approach you might take is you take uh, God's names. You can find a list of the names of God in the Bible. You can probably Google names of God maybe. And for a whole month, one day at a time, you could praise God for one of his names. Like El Shaddai, the Lord Almighty. Or the Everlasting God. Or Yahweh Jireh, the Lord will provide. Or Yahweh Shalom, the Lord is peace. Or Adonai, Lord, Master. And obviously, again, we could go on and on, and the point is not to use these names like they're magical, the letters or something, or, or just repeat them over and over, but instead to prayerfully reflect on what those names tell you about God until you're filled up with a passion for His glory. Or you could take a prayer you find in the Bible, and a lot of times you'll see the writers of Scripture doing what we're talking about. So 1 Kings 8, for example. When Solomon's praying at the dedication of the temple. And I love Solomon's prayer at the dedication of the temple because he doesn't talk about the bricks or what a beautiful building or anything like that. He talks about God. 1 Kings 8, verse 22. If you're fast, you can probably turn there. But 1 Kings 8, verse 22. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the assembly of Israel and spread out his hands towards heaven and said, O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. 
You have kept with your servant David, my father, what you declared to him. You spoke with your mouth and with your hand have fulfilled it this day. And what's he doing, Solomon? He's reflecting on the uniqueness of God, on the character of God. Verse 27, 1 Kings 8, he goes on. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house that I've built. Yet have regard to the prayer of your servant and to his plea, my Lord, my God. And if you need help, I'm saying you can pray along with Solomon. You take his words, you, you try to understand what they mean, and you use them in prayer yourself. This is what I mean when I say if you're going to hallow God's name, you need to look up. Very often you need to begin prayer by remembering who God is. Second, look in. If we're going to pray, hallowed be thy name, and really mean it, obviously it starts with looking at God and who he is and what he deserves. But second, we can also look at ourselves and evaluate. Are we actually hallowing God's name? It's kind of hypocritical for us to cry out, God, hallow your name, if we look at our lives and we're not seeking to hallow God's name. So this prayer can be a kind of test. I'm asking God to hallow his name. Am I hallowing his name? You know, John Piper, he preached a sermon on hallowed be thy name. It's a, it's a good sermon, worth listening to. And he, he walks through a couple passages of scripture that talk about what it means to hallow God's name. So you can write these down and look them up. But Numbers 20, 12, and Isaiah 8. And he says, if you look at those passages, hallowing God's name means two things. First, it means to believe God's word. And he gets this from Numbers 20, where God rebukes Moses. And you can look at it. But God says, because you did not believe in me, to hallow me in the eyes of the people of Israel. And so obviously, not believing there equals what? Not hallowing. And so if I'm going to pray this request, hallowed be your name, I need to stop and think and ask myself, am I living a life that shows I actually trust God's word? Second, hallowing means fearing God. And he gets this from Isaiah 8, 12 and 13. God says to the prophet Isaiah, do not call conspiracy all that this people call conspiracy and do not fear what they fear nor be in dread. So he says, don't compromise and be afraid of what these people are afraid of. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall hallow. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. And so not hallowing there means being afraid of what everyone else is afraid of, and Halloween is basically fearing God instead. And so the question is, am I fearing God or am I fearing man? In other words, what's driving me, man's approval or God's? And so as I'm praying, hallowed be thy name, and I'm not necessarily feeling it, I don't feel a, a passion for God's glory, I think about what it means to hallow God's name. And then I look at my life, and if I'm not trusting God or not fearing God, then I'm like, wow, what's going wrong? I really need God to answer this prayer, not just in the world in general, but in me. I mean, this is not just a throwaway prayer. Father, hallowed be your name out there. I don't hallow your name the way it deserves. So, Lord, work in me. Work in me. How do you actually pray this prayer? Look up to remember how great God is. Look in to begin feeling a need that you would hallow his name. And third, you can look back. 
if you're going to sort of kindle a passion for God's glory, I think look back on how God's acted to save. And this is something you see all the time in the Psalms. So Psalm 103, for example. Psalm 103, verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name, which is the psalmist hallowing God's name himself. The psalmist is setting God apart in his heart. And how does he stir himself up to do this? Listen, verse 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfied you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. And what's he doing? He's remembering some of the things God has done for him. And throughout the rest of the psalm, you find him talking about the ways in which God has been kind to him until the end of the psalm when he's basically shouting out, Bless the Lord, O you his angels. Bless the Lord, all his hosts. Bless the Lord, all his works. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And that's how we want to live our life, right? Looking and thinking, I want everyone, everywhere, everything to bless God. And there are other places where you find the psalmist doesn't start out so excited and it's more like he's concerned and he's worried. And you'll see if you read the psalm, he works his way through that and one of the ways he does is by going back and saying, God, this is who you are and this is what you've done for me until by the end he's like, yes, Lord, hallowed be thy name. And that is something you and I can do as well. You might make a list and set a goal for yourself. I'm going to write down 20 ways that God has shown his love for me through Jesus. And then you pray through them. God, I was out there and I was as self-centered as I could be and completely living this stupid life that was hurting me and hurting everyone else around me. And then you showed me Jesus. Hallowed be your name. Are you understanding what, what I'm saying? We have a relationship with God and we should be people who are passionate about the glory of God. And if you're not passionate about the glory of God, don't just say to yourself, well, that's just the way it is. Pray and work, pray and work until you are crying out, hallowed be his name. If you sit down with me and talk about my relationship with Marta and I say, you say, how's it going with Marta? I say, oh, it's, it's fine. It's okay. You say, well, are you excited about your wife? No, I'm not really. It's just, you know, we're doing the duty. We're doing the things. You'd be like, uh, you'd be like man, that's, that's not the attitude you should have for your wife. I'll say, well, it's just the way I feel. You say, that's the wrong way to feel. <laughs> that's the wrong way. You need to, you need to, we need to help you work on getting your attitude in line with this relationship. She's your wife, man. And this is your God. This is our God whose name deserves to be glorified. And this statement here, hallowed be your name, is a statement that shows us what we should want most. But a lot of times it's not something that's driving us as we pray because we're just talking. We're not remembering that we're talking to God and there's little awe. And so, of course, we need to pray that God would give us that awe back while at the same time working to be amazed by God by thinking about who God is and thinking about what God deserves and thinking about what God's done. Looking up, looking in, looking back. And one more, and this is probably the most important one, actually, for this particular prayer request in Luke, look forward as well. And that's because fundamentally, when we pray, how would be thy name, 
we're praying not so much, God, help us hallow your name, though of course we want that. Instead, we're praying, God, please, would you hallow your name? In other words, as we're looking around and we're seeing all this rebellion and we're seeing all this sin and all this God-hating, really, that's going on around us, we're longing for God to act in this world and keep his promises that we read about in the Bible, where he judges sinners and he reverses the way this world's going so that everyone sees who really is king, who really is God, and how great that God is. This is a prayer, essentially, where we are crying out to God to do what he promised and one thing God has promised very clearly in scripture is that there is a day coming when he will hallow his name and your heart should be saying like hallelujah hallelujah come Lord Jesus you see this a lot in the Old Testament prophets. This is basically how they prayed. In fact, I was preaching through the book of Micah a while ago, and Micah's a prophet, and if you're familiar with the prophets in the Old Testament, and I guess the kids in Roots should be, right? Uh, if you're familiar with the prophets in the Old Testament, you know they do a lot of time lamenting or being sad about how wicked everyone seems. And Micah's no different, and if you read through Micah, he's almost acting like a lawyer for God. And he's coming to God's people, and he's saying, God's going to judge you. And this is why. And even as he's warning them, they're not taking it seriously because they're all religious and prosperous. And Micah's like, it's coming. Judgment's coming. There's no way of getting around it until finally in chapter 7, all this, all this kind of breaks Micah. And you might want to turn there if you can find him. Micah 7. It's like he's listening to what he's saying and he starts weeping because these are his people. And they're going to be judged, and it almost feels hopeless to him. Micah 7, 2, he says, The godly has perished from the earth, and there's no one upright among mankind. And he describes them in verses 3 through 6. He says, Their hands are on what is evil. Their leadership is corrupt. You, you can't trust anyone because they're only looking out for themselves. And as you're reading, you kind of feel like Micah. What are you going to do in the middle of all this? How, how are you supposed to handle this? Because this is how it feels for us a lot of times as well. And Micah says, verse 7, Trust God. But as for me, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. And then, you know, Micah actually starts talking to God's enemies because he knows what's going to happen is that as God judges his people, God's enemies are going to start thinking that judgment says something about God. As God's people are judged, God's enemies aren't going to know why he's judging them, and so they're going to think God's a failure. And so Micah's like, don't get too excited, verse 8. Rejoice not over me, my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. And so in the middle of this chaos, I just wait content, verse 9, because I know what's coming is a great reversal, verse 10. Then my enemy will see and shame will cover her who said to me where is the Lord your God instead of getting discouraged what's Micah doing he's looking to the future and he's thinking about the promises God's made and what it means about what's ahead and he sees what's ahead is this great reversal where God turns everything upside down judging his enemies blessing his people this is verses 11 through 13 and as Micah thinks about all this it's like he prays in verse 14 he begins praying and his prayer is basically hallowed be your name 
with a little of your kingdom come thrown in as well. Verse 14, shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance. Come, be king God. In other words, save us the way you did back in the time of Moses. And this is so sure, Micah doesn't just pray it. God promises it, verse 15. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. And you know what's going to be the result of all this? Verse 16. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. What a great biblical allusion. All the way back to Genesis 3. Like the crawling things of the earth, they shall come trembling out of their strongholds. Verse 17. And the most important phrase is right there at the end. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God, and they shall be in fear of you. In other words, Micah's looking to the future, and he's seen as God enacts this great salvation for his people through his judgment on their enemies, God is going to hallow his name to the point where even God's enemies see how great and glorious he is, and it's going to cause them to fear and to tremble before God. That's a promise. And as we're living in this wicked world, sometimes we get so wrapped up in what's happening right now that we're not crying out, hallowed be thy name. We're not looking forward to that because it doesn't seem possible. And that's one reason we need to study God's promises and remember who we're talking to. We're talking to God. And our God has a plan for this whole world to be filled with his glory. Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. Behold, I'm making all things new. There's a day coming when God will dwell with man, John tells us. Revelation 21, what it's going to be like. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. God has a plan to hallow his name. And our God has the ability to accomplish that plan. And his plan is right on track, even as we speak. And so when we pray, hallowed be thy name, really we're affirming our faith in God. And we're saying, Lord, right now it kind of seems like everybody thinks the gospel's a joke. And Jesus is gone. And that judgment is a fairy tale. And it seems a little difficult for me in the middle of all that. But I'm going to trust in you and wait patiently. Because I know what I'm seeing right now is not how it's going to end. Because a great reversal is coming where you're going to keep all those promises you made throughout Scripture and glorify yourself. And that all those who are mocking you now are going to be ashamed because they're going to see you for who you really are. And God, that's what I want most. I want that more than my own comfort, more than my own pleasure, more than my own prosperity, more than my own glory. Father, hallowed be your name. That's how Jesus wants us to pray. He wants us to pray gospel-driven prayers. Believe, believe, Father. But he wants us to also pray God-centered prayers. Remember, remember, hallowed be thy name. What's that mean? 
He wants us to pray prayers that God would glorify himself. Why would we want that? Because we're in awe of God. And how do we do that in our prayers? Look up, look in, look back. But most of all, look forward. God is going to hallow his name. Father, hallowed be your name. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Prayer is such a privilege. We get to talk to God. We know the plan of God. How blessed are we as Christians. Lord, make us a church that prays. Not just a church that talks about itself a lot, but a church that is in awe of God and is amazed by your great plan revealed in the gospel. And a church that longs for you to glorify yourself and trusts that you will glorify yourself. And as a result, wants, wants that more than anything else. Lord, we know that's what's good for us. That's how you designed us. And uh, yet, Lord, so often we fail. And so we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that, Jesus, you died for sinners who say, hallowed be my name. But also, Lord, we thank you that you died to transform sinners from living a life focused on themselves to people living a life focused on the glory of God. Do that in us, we pray, Jesus, in your name. Amen.